CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time of the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Wednesday, January 31st, 2024, the last day in January. Wow, man, let's just pause and think about that. Mm-mm-mm. Time is flying into the future. Um, anyway, uh, big news here in Chicago today. I'm not going to discuss it uh, at great length in this particular show, but by the time this show is dropped, you'll have heard me talked about it. Uh, the Chicago City Council voted to approve a resolution calling for a ceasefire uh, in Gaza. It was a 23-23 tie, uh, and the deciding vote was cast by Mayor Brandon Johnson, uh, and uh, you know he, he gets to do that when it comes to a tie. Uh, the mayor in Chicago votes, uh, gets to vote, and he was the decisive vote. Uh, wow, I, there's so much to say uh, about the significance of this vote and what went down. I just want to say on a personal level how uh, appreciative I am of the Chicago City Council and Mayor Johnson for voting for this. This is me speaking, and I speak only for myself. I do not speak for my guests or anyone else. Um, I just feel as though uh, we should send the right message, and the right message is the secession of the onslaught that's happening in Gaza uh, and a recognition, as the ceasefire resolution does, uh, that uh, there are two sides to this uh, war uh, and that the current uh, violence that erupted began with Hamas uh, invading Israel and slaughtering 1,200 Israelis. But uh, the retaliation just is, in my humble opinion, is just unconscionable and uh not warranted in any way, and I can't see it how it's going to help help the security of people anywhere uh, in the area. And so I wholeheartedly endorse the city council for doing it. But the politics of it here in the city of Chicago are very interesting. Uh, Brandon Johnson got it together. Got to give a shout out to the mayor. Just in this in the situation where uh, he was able to win over swing voters, and perhaps most significantly, convince four alder people uh, who were against the resolution not to be on the council floor. 
So that's what enabled the resolution to pass because four, four would have been no votes where I don't know where they were. Maybe they took a walk. <laughs> so it's something, if, that, if that's what it takes to pass something, uh, well, that's what it took. And uh, so he got Pat Dowell. That was a pretty interesting one. Uh, and Emma Mitz, I'm doing this off the top of my head. Walter Burnett of the 27th Ward, that's a shocker. Uh, not to be on uh, Stephanie Coleman. I just did it just off the top of my head. How about that? The brain's still working. Uh, not to be on the council floor. So quite an improvement uh, from uh, in terms of dealing with uh, the Chicago City Council and uh, advocating your position with the City Council and one than it was uh, when they had that embarrassment dealing with the issue of, oh my gosh, the, um, where Carlos Ramirez Rosa had a stand uh, in the uh, the doorway to block aldermen um, from coming and voting on the Chicago Sanctuary Ordinance, uh, whether Chicago would remain a sanctuary city. So, Mayor Johnson, you seem to be improving when it comes to lobbying the Chicago City Council. All right, enough local news. Without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself and then we'll talk about things probably having not very much to do with Chicago, but will be fascinating nonetheless to all you junkies out there. So without further ado, distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Enter and sign in, please. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Steve Kraft. I'm a, uh, a Chicagoan uh, from uh, Rogers Park and Evanston. And I moved to, like most of the rest of Chicago, I'm in that far western suburb known as Phoenix, Arizona. Where we've got Portillo's and we've got Culver's and we've got Lou Malnati's and it's just like being on a western suburb of Chicago. A, f a far western, southwestern suburb. Yeah, it's a southwestern Chicago. suburb. Just take the, what, the 55 and... Uh, you're there. Yeah, you're there. Uh, uh, so one more time, uh, Steve Kraft, uh, that, that, that was an okay introduction of himself. I will now elaborate on it. Uh, at the last time I was on the show... Uh, I said he is uh, the Mike Flannery of Arizona because that will be instantly recognizable to Chicago. Uh, uh, in Arizona, Mike Flannery is known as the Steve Kraft of Chicago. Uh, Steve, for years, was a political reporter for Fox TV uh, in Arizona, knows Arizona politics inside and out. And so he's my Arizona correspondent. Uh, he's also a very uh, dear and old friend of mine. I've known this young man since he was in seventh grade, ladies and gentlemen. I knew him in seventh grade. And I was just telling uh, Nate, the producer, this kid had the babiest baby face, but he was the baby face assassin <laughs> on the, the quiz bowl team that we had. <laughs> he was the baby face assassin, Steve Kraft. Well, I don't know. Jordan of quiz bowl, man. <laughs> and he would cut you off the knee. Like, he let you get a little lead. I, go, I think I'd, I'd break your ankles regularly. Well, we were, were we on the team together? Uh, no, no, we were, we were in the same team or we were competitor, competitors. I can't remember. I don't know. It's it's lost in the mists of time. But, yeah. The mists but of Mike time. Flannery, uh, didn't he wind up at Fox 32 ultimately? I'm, yes. Okay. I And I was at Fox 10 and I worked alongside him at the um, at political conventions. I think I met him in Charlotte, North Carolina in 2012 at the Obama convention there. Is that what it was? Yeah. It, it was the North Carolina. Jeez, I forgot that. Yeah, that was in Charlotte. And the, because I'd just gone to the Republicans in Tampa, and then we went up to Charlotte. And I remember he was telling me all kinds of things about uh, living in Beverly. I think he lived in the Beverly yes. neighborhood. And so he's a, he's a great guy. I mean, he's, yeah, he loves Beverly. Yeah, he's an expert. 
Expert in politics. Right. Um, so uh, let's take the deep dive. Uh, so much to discuss. Uh, I could lead with Gaza and the impact on the national election, but we'll hold off on that. It would be a natural transition where it began. And we'll talk some straight-up Arizona politics. Arizona has become a key swing state, as we all remember and recall from 2020. Um, the latest poll that was just released, uh, I got, someone sent it to me this morning, uh, has Arizona, Trump ahead in Arizona. Uh, now, I just want to remind everyone the obvious that we are uh, in at the end of January. The election's not till November. A lot can and will happen uh, before we get to that election. But uh, right now uh, it is Trump 47, uh, Biden 44 in Arizona, a state uh, that Biden was victorious in last year. Uh, excuse me, last election. Uh, Steve, what's your thoughts about that poll? Uh, should the Biden team be concerned or are there just too many variables to uh, pass judgment? Go. Both. Democrats should always be concerned in Arizona because the state even now tilts red and it takes an extraordinary performance by Democrats and then some really incompetent election work by Republicans to lose. And the last couple cycles, the Republicans have done a really bad job and that's why they've lost all these key races. Um, However, I would also say that for the Biden team, it's too early to panic uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, they are just getting their campaign apparatus off the ground in a serious way. Um, they're about to drop a $250 million bomb of advertising in the next couple of months to kind of seed the ground for the campaign. And I also think that people aren't fully engaged yet. Um, and I think that as the legal travails of uh, Donald Trump continue, that could have a significant effect on this race. So, and also, I don't know where this poll came from. Um, some of them are better than others. Obviously, the Democrats always have to be concerned in Arizona because only recently have they even become competitive there. Um, but it's too early for them to panic. And I do think that uh, there are a couple issues that do play into the Democrats' hands if they get a sufficiently high turnout and they can, they can win the state. Uh, this poll, just so you know, comes from a polling uh, firm called the We Love Donald John Trump polling firm. No, just kidding. Uh, it's from Bloomberg, Bloomberg News, and it's a, a, a poll that just came out of swing states. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it sounds uh, about right, you know, but I don't think a lot of people are, are that dialed into this race quite yet. Um, and there's going to be some movement. But the other strange thing, though, is having said that, a lot of these numbers are kind of baked in and the 10 or 15% of the people who are going to actually decide who wins and who loses maybe haven't sorted out their thoughts yet, but a lot of other people have. Well, that's generally my feeling about polls when it comes to uh, Donald Trump and follow me in my theory. Uh, Donald Trump supporters, uh, and we've discovered this, they, they're not budging. They love the, they love the MAGA man. They're going to stick with the MAGA man uh, regardless of what, what happens, no matter how many juries uh, claim that he sexually assaulted a woman, no matter how many juries claim uh, that he was uh, fraudulent in his business practices or that he uh, was leading an insurrection, they're going to go with him. Uh, I do not believe Joe Biden has will ever get more than 50 percent of the vote just out and out uh, 
before an election, if you follow what I'm saying. He's the one who has to win over the independents. So the undecideds, I think, will go Biden's way. If They're not baked into Biden as much as Trump supporters. So in every one of these states, what I'm saying, if it's just Trump versus Biden, Trump supporters will outnumber Biden supporters. You follow what I'm saying? Sure, of course. Uh, Biden supporters have never been that much into Biden. He's, in my opinion, politically speaking as a candidate, he's not very talented. There's, there isn't that magic about him that Obama has, that Reagan had, that Clinton has. There just isn't. Um, but what he is, is a seasoned professional manager. And this is going to be a movement election. In other words, the Democrats aren't going to really be lining up behind Biden per se. He's going to be the guy who's the, the leader and the name on the ballot, obviously. But it's going to be a movement election where if you are for a restoration of Roe versus Wade, if you are for preservation of democracy, you know, if you are for uh, the infrastructure bill that, you know, President Biden got shepherded through Congress, you know, it, it's a movement of people. And it's it's like getting the band back together and dragging it across the finish line. Whereas for Donald Trump, to me, it's like following your favorite evangelist. You just love the guy. And so you vote for him. He campaigns on slogans, not policies. But but that works for his supporters. It's a different view. Uh, all right. You uh, mentioned, a t did I get this correct? A $250 million ad bomb. That is in Arizona alone? No, no. I think that's around the country. Okay. I was going to say, wow, but, but, damn, Arizona's getting you know, a lot of love. We'll see a lot of uh, it. No, it's, it's, a, it's a nationwide thing. And it's going to seed the ground for attacks over the summer and into the fall. And I think there'll be a lot of feel-good things there. Um, and I think there'll be a demonstration that the economy is improving. And that's another key factor here. We've got eight months roughly before the election. And if if people start to think it's easier to pay their rent and buy a car and put gas in the car and buy a carton of eggs, you know, that's going to help the Democrats. Um, all right. Uh, before I get to extremism of being on uh, the ballot in Arizona, writing that down, uh, I'd love your thoughts on the impact of the um, the war in Gaza, uh, and uh, my show leans left, as you know, and many of my guests and a lot of my listeners have told me they're not going to vote for Joe Biden because um, they're offended by his embrace of Netanyahu, uh, and uh, particularly in the early days of the war. Uh, how do you think this is playing out in Arizona with Democratic voters? I think Go it's ahead. playing out in Arizona like it's playing out in a lot of places. And the people who are feeling very squishy about supporting Biden right now are uh, a lot of young voters, a lot of uh, millennials, 20-somethings, Gen Z voters, a lot of people who get their news off uh, TikTok or Instagram. Uh, it has become uh, very unpopular to be a full-throated supporter of Israel at this point in this conflict. So the best political advice for Biden, and I think he's trying to do it, is to push for a long ceasefire and hope that by next fall that the situation has receded a little bit into the background. In the same way that when the disastrous exit from Afghanistan first happened, everybody thought it was really going to impact the 2022 midterms, and it really didn't. And so uh, if 
if, and it's a big if, uh, there's a conflict avoided in the West Bank, and if the situation in Gaza uh, slows down, um, and if the Israelis seem to be, you know, uh, working alongside other nations who want to stop the, the bloodshed a little bit, I think that will help the Biden people. Um, yeah, boy, the Afghanistan uh, blowback off Afghanistan just really exposed. I think this the like the bizarre hypocrisy of American when America when it comes to foreign policy, Steve. Uh, America wanted nothing to do with a war in Afghanistan. But when the U.S. troops left uh, and the Taliban took over uh, and there was bloodshed reported, all of a sudden America says, oh, my God, this is an outrage. And I'm like, you didn't want American troops there. You certainly didn't want your sons and daughters to be fighting in Afghanistan. You follow what I'm saying? There's an irrationality and illogic to a lot of this, in my humble opinion, especially when it comes to foreign policy, especially when it's channeled through, like, I don't know, two-minute TV bits or TikTok bit, et cetera, if you follow what I'm, yeah. I'm saying. But don't, but don't you agree, though, that, you know, if if this is on the back burner as opposed to the front burner, and if people start paying more attention to threats to democracy, and if they start paying more attention to their improving economic prospects, that that could turn this ship around a little bit for the Democrats. Yes, I uh, my basic thought on that is there will be a people, uh, including some dear friends of mine, who will stick to their pledge not to vote for Joe Biden uh, because of, uh, to a large degree, his uh, embracing of Netanyahu. Uh, and the support during this war. You're absolutely correct. But do you think that uh, people would, would, you know, those, those same folks, I mean, what would Trump do? Trump, Trump wouldn't be tight with the with the Gaza side yeah. either. Oh, my God. Donald Trump, in my humble opinion, and uh, will be, like, I've said this before, I'll say it again, will be like Richard Nixon at 68, and Steve is old enough to remember this. Mm. He made a little nudge for me uh, to go back that far in his brains. Uh, Cells, but 1968, Richard Nixon was sabotaging the peace uh, talks in Paris between the North Vietnamese, the South Vietnamese, and the U.S. Uh, because he wanted, did not want uh, Hubert Humphrey, who was then the, his Democratic rival and the vice president, to be able to claim that peace was near. Right. He sabotaged that. I have no doubt that Donald Trump will be doing whatever he can uh, with Benjamin Netanyahu to sabotage any effort at peace in the Middle East because that only helps him electorally. Right. It's very Machiavellian, Steve. It's very heartless. Mm -hmm. It's very cruel. But that's Donald Trump. So I have no doubt in my mind that Donald Trump understands exactly what you said. The more this recedes, the more it helps Joe Biden. And so he's going to do everything he can to keep it. That's me speaking. I don't know what your thoughts are. I agree. And, and it's kind of a neat segue into the border. Because from the same logic, he does not want to deal on the border uh, because um, an unsettled border is his big issue. And if the border, if Biden gets something passed where he can declare, I'm closing the border because over 4,000 people tried to come to the United States today, or I think that was the threshold, um, that is going to really mellow out that issue. And that takes away his best playing card for Trump. So, yeah, uh, in fact, there was a. Um, X, or it used to be called a tweet, 
a post from Newt Gingrich yesterday saying that it would be crazy for the Republicans to cut a deal today with the Democrats on border legislation because mm-hmm. it benefits them. Benefits them having yeah. a situation the way it is today. That's an exact analogy uh, to what we happening uh, in the Middle East. Absolutely. All right. Uh, since you, uh, it was a good transition, give you credit. Uh, you have lost none of your game since you uh, retired from the business. Huh. Uh, so let's let's go a little further. How does border politics play in Arizona, uh, which is actually <laughs> a lot closer to the border than, say, Illinois? Right. Uh, so go ahead. And the time it takes for you to drive to Galena, I can drive to Mexico from Phoenix. Okay, so it's close. And if you if you live in Tucson, it's just over an hour to to, to Nogales. That's the border. So, um, you know, the border is very close and it's a very big part of the politics in Arizona. The day-to-day life of people in Arizona, most people in Arizona have never seen the border and will never go there. So it might as well be a million miles away, but it's also like 10 miles away. So it's, it's in everyone's mind. But for a lot of folks, it's abstract because a lot of people, unless you're visiting Mexico or vacationing or driving across, you know, a lot of people, it's not something that's part of their life. People are hypocritical about the border in Arizona because as much fulminating as there is about this terrible situation, all these people streaming into the to the area, into the state of Arizona, uh, almost everyone who lives in Arizona has at one time or another benefited from undocumented immigrants, fixing their house, doing their lawn, taking care of their kids, working in a restaurant. You don't even know. So it's it's a very essential part of the Arizona economy that nobody wants to admit at all. Man, I'm telling you, that du- that is doubly true. Not doubly true. That is also true of Chicago. I don't know if you followed our quote-unquote migrant crisis in yeah, Chicago. I, I don't know how. Okay, well, so uh, as you know, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, has been busing in uh, yeah. migrants who've come over the border. Most of, most of them are Venezuelans right. to Chicago. And that has just freaked Chicago out. Chicago, I could go on and on about this, Steve. I'm going to avoid that temptation because my listeners have heard me on this subject many, many times. Uh, Chicago it has exposed the hypocrisy of Chicagoans. Chicago calls itself a sanctuary city. Uh, and yet when you go to public meetings, the loudest voices sound like Trump. And people tell me, Ben, they're just, it's classic. They use uh, Nixon rhetoric. The silent majority in Chicago supports uh, the, the, the Venezuelan uh, migrants. I go, well, they're awfully silent for a majority, probably hiding under a table, If if they feel this way, they sure have a funny way of showing it. Uh, And it's written up as a crisis. Uh, So, yeah, we we, we support the idea of sanctuary when it's nowhere near us. For some reason, I think we've been gaslit by Trump. That's my thoughts on this, Um, to fear people who look different than you. Uh, But uh, so it's a very powerful issue here uh, in Chicago. I'm not quite sure where we are. If do you get it? And is there any advantage in Arizona if you? talk the way you do and tell people like you expose their inconsistency. Let's not call it hypocrisy. Let's call it inconsistency. Do you think that it has a persuasive effect on people or do you think people in Arizona are just willing to live with that inconsistency? If you follow it, I I see no political benefit in pointing out the truth, unfortunately. And uh, it's a toxic issue for Democrats and Republicans in Arizona. Everyone is saying that the system is broken there are party differences and that the Republicans are all about enforcement and fencing. And the Democrats tend to be much more about uh, the rule of law 
and paying attention to human rights and uh, migrants having uh, the opportunity to seek asylum, but they want to see it done in in a more um, systematic way, and they want people to you know follow rules more and not just not just stream over the border and then ask for asylum. So it's bad for Democrats at this point. Uh, unless there is some way of making the system more orderly and predictable. Do you see any way to do that? Not before the election. Typically, large initiatives happen in the first year or so of a new presidency. Yeah. And so if Biden wins the election and if he wins the and if Democrats win the House and somehow hang on to the Senate, then you can see uh, a large reform in the immigration system. I think that might be the very first thing that happens. Um, but right now, I don't see any change. And in fact, um, you know, there's a bipartisan um, bill that pretty much has gained support to pass in the U.S. Senate, but it's never going to get to the House of Representatives, unfortunately. Yeah. No, you just pointed out Newt Gingrich's tweet. Uh, right. Trump has uh, also issued statements like pretty much commanding Republicans uh, in Congress not to vote for it. Right. Uh, pretty much pointing out, yes, I need this. I need, I, we can't afford to have a resolution to this because this is such a effective campaign, uh, uh, tool, uh, for us, by the way, going now you're not running for office, so you don't have to worry about blowback. So I'm going to throw something to you and uh, get your response. To this. Just being Steve Kraft, thoughtful person, not Steve Kraft, politician needing votes. If we have an open border for capital or for money that can flow from Central America to the United States and back, why can't we have it for labor, human beings? Why can't there be an open border? What's the matter with that? I would I could argue that the crisis occurs because we don't have an open border, because we make people have to jump through, swim over, swim in or around or over or under barricades risk their lives, as opposed to just coming across the border to work. Your thoughts? Well, the only question I would have is, because I do see that point. I mean, we do have an unemployment rate of, what's 3.7, 3.8% in the country. And there's a lot of other work that Americans don't want to do. So you have to ask yourself, what's the big deal with all these people coming in and doing all the work that folks right around us don't want to do? But the, the only other thing, thing that weighs on that to me is, uh, if you did have a completely open border, how many people might we be looking at moving to America? I mean, what if it's 100 million people or 200 million people? I mean, what if it's most of Central America? Why would you want to stay in Guatemala at all if you could just move to Arizona or Texas or New Mexico or Chicago? At some point, you'd think there has to be some sort of regulation. Maybe what we're looking at is people talk about it a lot, a guest worker program. Uh, and if there were a systematic guest worker program where people could come in and it's regulated and pay taxes and, and be employed and then be able to go back home, maybe that would be the way to go. Well, uh, the, um, the underlying assumption of the point you just made is that the only thing that prevents people, let's say from Guatemala uh, to uh, to leaving Guatemala in just overwhelming numbers going to the United States is the difficulty of getting across the border. 
Uh, so to give you an example, mm. I could move to California anytime I want. Yeah. I'm not moving to California, even though I was like, damn, it's so nice. I was just there last weekend. That's why it's on my mind, Steve. It's so beautiful. I love the ocean. But I stay. In other words, there are other factors to get somebody to leave his or her home country than the difficulty of going. Yeah. Uh, I, I, it's a total guess on my part, but I think there would be 100 million people who would come to America if they could from Central America and South America. Dang, 100 million. I do. I mean, think about it. Uh, the This is not, you know, 1930 or 40. We now are in an era where everyone's on social media and everyone has a TV set. Everyone's on the internet, even in the poorest places, pretty much. Everyone has a cell phone. Everybody knows what the economic prospects are in our country versus Ecuador or versus Venezuela or parts of Colombia and a lot of nice places that, you know, a lot of people are barely subsisting and, and, and getting by. I think there'd be a huge uh, attraction to people coming to America if we had a completely open border. I just do. And I, and I live near the border and I've been to the border. I've covered the border. There's a, there's a hunger for people to come to America. It really is. You really, you really feel it when you're, when you're living in this part of the country. In, 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 what is that? What is that draw? That because America a lot of people has? have the notion, and I've interviewed some of these people, um, that this is the last best hope of mankind, our country. We see all these problems with America. But if you live in another place, you know, you could say Amer America is the worst country in the world with the worst system of government in the world uh, until you factor in every other country and every other system of government. Because they're worse, <laughs> Right. So we are the least worst of everybody, which makes us yeah. the best. And that's why this, this country is a magnet. And it's something we should be proud of as Americans. But to be realistic about it, I still think, just my personal opinion, there has to be regulation on the border to some degree. You know, maybe, maybe uh, regulating the asylum would be one way of starting. Probably more security and probably working on an area that nobody's talking about, and that is folks overstaying their visa. In fact, a lot more people overstay their visas coming down from Canada than coming up from Mexico. Yeah. And that's something you don't talk about. And here's a thought experiment. Let's suppose that Central America and Mexico were nations where most of the people were white and spoke English. Would we be having this conversation in the same way? No, we wouldn't be having this conversation at all. Okay. It would be called a great opportunity. Right. <laughs> so let's acknowledge, let's acknowledge that that's a lot of the problem here. Yeah. People, uh, and certainly this is, I think, true with Republicans, are uneasy about uh, people who don't speak English and are not white wanting to come to America in large numbers. Oh, and, and this is where, uh, Steve, I said I was going to restrain myself, and here I find myself returning. This is where I... The, the impact of Donald Trump has been so pronounced. Donald Trump announced he was running for president in 2015 with a, like a, a declaration of hate on Mexicans. He was very open about it. And oh, they're the enemy. They, it's, Mexico's not sending their good people to us. Okay. It was just a weird thing to say. Like A lot of well, people agree with that. I hate to tell you, but I've been in a lot of people who believe that. Wait a minute. You, a lot of people, I live in Chicago. Venezuelans substitute Venezuelans for Mexicans. You want to get 
You want to bridge gaps between different ethnic groups in Chicago? You want to get, like, Muslims and Jews on the same page? Tell me you're going to move some Venezuelans in their neighborhood. Mm. All of a sudden, they show up at a meeting and they sound like Trump. So I know what you're saying. Trump spoke to something that a lot of Chicagoans, like, they buy into, Steve. And he speaks to them, you know, you know and the, de- but I'll tell the you Democrats. The thing about it, when you, when you actually, and I, I covered a lot of these when they when folks were dropped off, like, at the Greyhound bus station in large numbers yeah. from the border. Um, and you talk to Venezuelans and, or Mexicans or Nicaraguans or Hondurans or wherever they're from, they're, you know, invariably the nicest people. And uh, they're just they just want to live. And I interviewed people who were like engineers in Venezuela or Nicaragua, um, highly trained people, doctors, whatever, willing to just do whatever, you know, to you know, just be landscapers, just do anything at all, just to survive. And these are the people that were that so many folks are demonizing. If you actually talk to them, it, it, it's very heartrending. Yeah. Really is in real in yeah. real world of things. No, it, it's it's an old story here in Chicago. The demonization of people who don't look like you. Uh, when you and I were kids. Uh, it was very much going on uh, when you and I were entering, uh, just about to enter sixth grade. I want you to pause and think about that. Young Steve Kraft was a scholar at Chute Junior High, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and you were about to enter. Uh, Martin Luther King brought his campaign yep. for open housing to the city of Chicago and got hit in the head with a rock. Yep. Okay, so that's Chicago, man. It's yeah, some of Chicago, you know, not all of Chicago, but it's like that everywhere, though. There's always people like that, and there's and we we haven't talked about this either. There are folks oh, wow. out there who believe in the great replacement theory. Yes. The Democrats want these folks from Central America uh, because they will replace, they will add, they're all Democratic voters. And they're going to oh, replace yeah. the, the, you know, the white Protestant majority that America traditionally has been. And what they don't get is that all these people who come here want to be like everybody else. The minute they get a little money and they're able to buy a house they're, and they're your neighbor, they're just like any other neighbor. They really are. I mean, I have in my neighborhood, there's all kinds of different kinds of people where I live in the southern part of Phoenix. And you're, that's been my experience. You're absolutely correct. Uh, if they come to Chicago area, they will move out of Chicago. They will go to Skokie. They will go yeah. to Cicero. Yeah. Then they'll move up to other further north. Yep. Uh, and they'll end up voting Republican going, you know, Ben, it's I'm just going to do something. And everyone's making a big deal out of it. And they're all yeah. the same. All right. Uh, so you're now leading to me in extremism and right. uh, great replacement. Bring you back from the edge. Uh, so this is a perfect transition. I will now be the uh, transitioner uh, into to Taylor Swift. Hmm. Follow me what I'm about to say. Um, the Republican Party right now um, is fairly good, I would say, uh, and I don't mean good and like I'm happy they're doing this, but they've had success. That's how I should phrase it uh, with their whacked out conspiracy theories that gain traction with a good deal of their loyal supporters. And then like kind of, like I said, work well. Like some independent voters might be swung by it. Uh, you talked about the great replacement theory. We've talked about that a lot. Um, that, of course, has so many anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish roots in it. Um, 
There's also this latest one about Taylor Swift. And so essentially the Republicans are now spreading uh, the conspiracy theory that there has been an alliance between, I'm not making this up, ladies and gentlemen, this is the, I'm just doing my best to repeat the theory between the National Football League, uh, the um, uh, TV, which, which whichever network is broadcasting the Super Bowl, I'm not even sure which one it is, uh, which is preposterous if it's, if it's Fox. I think it's CBS uh, this year. Which one is it? I think it's CBS. CBS, okay. Uh, and the Biden administration <laughs> to use Taylor Swift uh, as a vehicle to reelect Joe Biden. And the theory is that because her boyfriend, uh, Kelsey, is at the tight end for Kansas City, they will guarantee a victory for Kansas City in the Super Bowl, which will enable uh, Taylor Swift and Kelsey to embrace, hug, endorse Joe Biden, uh, and then uh, begin his reelection by brainwashing millions of women into voting for Biden for no other reason than Taylor Swift has embraced him. Steve, I'm not making this up. This is their theory. It's as ludicrous as the great replacement theory, but that doesn't stop them from repeating it. Uh, and it doesn't stop it from being a factor in the upcoming election. Your thoughts about the Taylor Swift conspiracy theory? Well, it's nonsense. Uh, most of the owners in the NFL, which is the most conservative of all the major sports, are Republicans. Um, and so I don't think, <laughs> if that were true, the owners would all have to be liberal Democrats who would have an agenda. Um, I think really what it reflects is more a well-grounded fear that Taylor Swift could move some significant blocks of young voters who are not otherwise tuned into politics into the Democratic column. And that could be what they're afraid of, obviously, is that could be a crucial uh, swing contingent of votes. Uh, if she makes it uncool for people under 30 years old, let's say, to vote for Trump, at least some people, and um, if she's able to sort of make the obvious point that, you know, if you want a restoration of Roe versus Wade, um, that, you know, she's bringing that up. I mean, she's, you know, there's a lot of women. She has 279 million followers on Instagram. Um, if she decides to, and she endorsed uh, Biden in 2020, and she has uh, been more and more progressive in her statements in the last few years, she's strongly for LGBTQ rights. Mm -hmm. uh, I can understand why Republicans are afraid of her, but the conspiracy theory is a lot of BS. And how does that play into uh, Arizona politics? Like we, I, that's a natural transition to extremism as a force. Well, we have a lot uh, of that out here. We have a lot of uh, people with fevered imaginations, starting with my old colleague, Carrie Lake, who's running for Senate this time around, having narrowly lost the governor's race last time. Um, and, you know, I'm sure she'll be beating the drum on this one, too. She's, uh, you know, she's way out there. <laughs> she's in the outer limits, like the old TV show. <laughs> But, uh, you know, she's I don't know how much folks want to hear about her, her, uh, her behavior out here in the last uh, couple of months. But, you know, she's um, very much into the conspiracy theory take on things. Uh, she's a crazy, full throated Trump supporter. Um, and she 
succeeded in getting the head of the Arizona Republican Party, who had worked for the Trump campaign in 2016, got him dismissed as the chairperson of the Arizona Republican Party by secretly taping him 10 months ago. And then uh, in a conversation in which he said, look, I have some powerful friends. We'll, we'll pay you basically to go away. You know, so she said it was a big bribe and she made a big deal out of it. And he, and he uh, was forced to resign. But, but the point is that here, uh, the Republican Party has become very much the Trump party. There is no one but Trump supporters anymore in the Republican ranks. So if you are a McCain-style Republican, you're either sitting it out or you're a reluctant Democrat or you're trying to figure out what to do next, but, but you're not in the party hierarchy anymore. So that's really what's happening out here in a big way. Yeah, I followed that story. There was, an, I think I sent it to you. There was an article. Well, it was covered in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Yeah. I immediately sent it to you. And then right. said, you got to come on the show to, to talk about it. It's so bizarre and twisted. Um, I'm blanking on the name of the Republican uh, state chair. that His, his name is Jeff DeWitt. He was the Arizona state treasurer. And uh, he worked for Trump, helping him with finances in the 2016 campaign. And when Trump won, he rewarded Jeff DeWitt by making him the chief financial officer of NASA. Yeah. So he's he's a very capable, uh, very competent, funny, uh, charismatic kind of guy. And I don't doubt that uh, he probably did say to Kerry, look, we'll, we'll give you a couple of mil to get out of here. Why don't you run in a couple of years for governor again? I think most intelligent Republicans realize that she's a total drag on the ticket. They'd love to see someone else because she has a very strong, you know, 42 percent share. People who will vote for her and run through a brick wall for her. But that's it. Like so many of these Trump Trump people who went down to defeat in the last couple of cycles, she has a ceiling and she can't get past it because she rejects anyone who isn't exactly in her ballpark. Yeah. Boy, that reminds me of Trump. Yeah. She has a ceiling uh, and uh, getting a board across that ceiling. Well, uh, this gets the what we were talking about earlier in the show. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, But this is a three way race, potentially yes. in our Senate race. And it's a hugely important Senate race. And one of the people running is Ruben Gallego, who is a Chicagoan, went to Evergreen Park High School, grew up on the south side. Uh, he's a progressive Democrat. He moved to Arizona after going to Harvard and then going into heavy combat in Iraq in the war in 2005 after graduating from Harvard. Uh, and you know, really heavy combat. In fact, he was in the Marine unit and that had suffered more casualties than any other in the whole conflict, mm -hmm. including his best friend who was killed. Came to Arizona, he wound up, uh, of course, in the House of Representatives, and now he's running as a progressive. And then the third person who may run, we're not sure right now, is Kirsten Sinema, former Democrat, now independent. I personally don't think she's going to run. That's my. Is that right? You think she's just going to? Uh, she's been playing coy. I sent you another article about that. Yeah, but the clock's uh, running, right? Yeah. Now she's <laughs> until April to file 40,000 signatures. Costs yeah. a million dollars to get all those signatures. And I don't know if she's going to do it. She hasn't advertised, uh, hasn't done any interviews with news media. Uh, I, I personally think she's just going to cash out and go work for some lobbying firm or pharmaceutical company or hedge fund, stay on the East Coast. That's what I think. Uh, and uh, it, when Steve says she needs 40,000 signatures, that's to run as an independent. It yeah, doesn't take 40,000. To get on the ballot, yeah. period. I mean, you got you to file the signatures. Yeah. 
Uh, it's a ballot access question. Uh, yeah. Just like Donald Trump has ballot access issues uh, throughout the country, including here in Illinois. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's a fascinating three-way race if it does come down to a three-way race. Uh, when when I read the article in the New York Times uh, about uh, Carrie Lakes, and it, Steve, I got a mental block. I keep wanting to call her Kari because that's how the name looks to me. But yeah, uh, I'm, I'm going to go with Carrie. Do everything I can to think of that Stephen King novel. Um, when it when I when I think of Carrie Lakes' bizarre uh, counterattack against Jeff Dewitt. Uh, the, the, the like the John McCain like head of the Republican Party uh, in Arizona. I'm like, Arizona was the state of John McCain, and I gotta believe, Steve, that there are still people who honor his legacy, whatever that legacy is, sure. uh, and are gotta be put off. Uh, by what Carrie Lake is doing and the kind of rhetoric she's espousing and the attacks she's making on mainstream Republican types. That's what's uh, so, and that would have an impact. Go that's ahead. what's so yeah. dumb about her campaign. These are people that if she made nice with them would probably swallow their pride and vote for her over voting for a Democrat. But but she said, you know, with, with gusto last time around that she's driven a stake through the McCain machine. And so why would you vote for her? I mean, it just seems like she's clowned the whole thing up. And so those folks now are calling themselves independents. Some of them have actually migrated over to the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. uh, and others are just sort of uh, grumbling, but they're reluctantly voting for Democrats. And that's why the Democrats elected uh, a Democratic governor. And, and that's why I don't think Carrie Lake's going to win the Senate race either. And it's so on the ballot, too. Say that again? It goes up and down the ballot. The Secretary yeah. of State last time went to a Democrat. The Attorney General of Arizona is a Democrat. Mm -hmm. It's the only reason that there still are abortion rights in Arizona hanging by a thread because a Democrat won by a couple hundred votes. I mean, literally less than 300 votes out of two and a half million wow. uh, to be the Attorney General and to, to kind of protect that right, at least for another couple of years. So how much leeway... Uh, it does Congressman Gallegos have uh, in such a race uh, in terms of moving to the left? Now, follow me on what I'm about to say. Let's assume that you're correct and Kristen Sinema is not running. And it sure looks like she's not running, okay? Uh, unless there's a miraculous uh, signature gathering process that begins in February, um, literally tomorrow. Uh, so there's always, you know, there's talk about a ceiling I feel like in, 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 in states like Arizona, there's only so far a Democrat can go to the left before he or she has to worry about the counterattack. Absolutely. So how does that work out for him? Go ahead. Right, he's in a safe Latino district right now, and he can be a progressive, and he is. In a general campaign in Arizona, which is closely split and has lots of Republican people and lots of independents, he's migrating more to the center He's talking a lot more about abortion access. Um, he's talking about uh, making reasonable uh, deals on the border issue. He's talking a lot about protecting and defending our democracy. And he was in the Capitol on January 6th, several years ago, during that attack, and was more than anyone else mobilizing his fellow legislators to take on the uh, the rioters, if it, if it came to that, and narrowly missed coming to that. 
but but he's running a, a much more centrist campaign. The people running his campaign ran uh, John Fetterman's campaign in Pennsylvania a couple years ago. They're they're really wily. They're great social media campaigners. They're very sharp, and they know how to take a progressive and make that progressive seem a little more middle of the road. Uh, strategically. And that's what's going to happen with uh, Ruben Gallego, I think. And uh, what's his position, uh, if he has one, uh, on Israel and uh, Palestine and Gaza? Well, I think he's one of those uh, people who uh, thinks that Israel had a right to defend itself, which very few people are going to disagree with that. But he's also the in, in a situation where he wants to see the violence stop and he wants to see negotiations begin. He wants to see the hostages freed. I think he's very much where President Biden is. Uh, I th- initially supporting, obviously, you know, our long, long-term ally, and it was a brutal attack on Israel uh, back in October. But at some point, you have to worry about, okay, let's, let's suppose all of Gaza is flattened. What happens the next day? Uh, this is only going to happen again absent some sort, ultimately, maybe it's a dream of some two-state solution, some some way that Gazans have their own place and Israel is secure and they have their own country. I don't know. But it seems like everyone's kind of fumbling their way through this. And Ruben Gallego is just like that. He's just trying to figure out a way that everybody can feel that uh, we're on a path towards peace. Uh, so I'm going to personalize this a little bit for you. Uh, Listening to you, the conversation we're having, uh, you're more or less, I would say, and I know you t- you hid this when you were on the mic, but you're no longer on the mic. I would call you a centrist Democrat. Uh, and how in your life uh, do the people that you're close to, uh, that you're friends with, who are of the leftist persuasion, respond to you? Uh do are you under counterattack uh, from, fam- from family and friends on the left? No, and my, my family has a variety of different points of view on this on this kind of thing. Some people are much more full throated supporters of Israel than I am. I I just feel like by nature I'm a very pragmatic person, and I'm interested in doing what needs to be done to solve a problem most efficiently and most effectively, and um, also looking at the long the long view of history, you know, that area has been in constant turmoil since 1948, even before that. At what point is there some solution? And what does it take to get there? There, there were a couple near misses. I mean, Yasser Arafat could have made this happen, but he didn't. There have been, there have been agreements, the Oslo Accords, there were agreements. People have got assassinated political leaders on both sides for trying to make peace. The extremists always seem to rule the situation and the regular people in the middle don't. I'm for the regular people in the middle. That's where I am. And uh, there's no truth in rumor that Steve Kraft will be running uh, for a senator in Arizona anytime, too. Uh, Although you had this one great quote, uh, which um, I don't know if it will work well in any campaign. And it is, uh, quote, I see no political advantage to pointing out the truth, end of quote. Uh, man, there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, all right, we'll close with a little lighter uh, topic. Uh, those who remember the last time Steve was in the show, uh, we both... <laughs> 
we're not embarrassed by this as much as we probably should be. Uh, but we were both members when we were at Evanston Township High School together, two young scholars at ETHS way back when in the uh, 70s. Uh, we were both members of the White Sox fan club. Yes, it's true. I was the only one who had the guts to get his picture uh, taken and put in the yearbook. Somehow or other, Steve always managed to miss. Uh, the- <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I don't want to be sitting with you losers. Oh, I don't you guys are taking a picture. I would love to have been in that. Kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I'm in that yearbook for, people are like digging through the rubble of my high hey, school years. The only thing he did was be in the high school. I just went to the 50th reunion. I tried to drag you there with our, with our joint friend, Phil Hilder, who we're trying to get on your show. Oh, you'll never get. I'm surprised you even mentioned his last name. Now he's, he's, he's a great, gonna... great American. We'll get him on the show. Don't worry about it. I'll convince We're not getting Phil on this show. I forgot about hey, that. Weren't you going to talk about the new stadium? Are you pumped about it? Yes, that's what I'm getting to. Phil, he's not coming on the show. Come he's on, too Phil. scared. <laughs> Come on, stop being Come on, scared, man. Phil. Come on out. Uh, yeah, new stadium. I'm all over the map with the new stadium. Uh First of all, I've come to uh, like the old stadium, which is only 30 years old. Okay, let's just point that out. Uh, and I've really enjoyed going to some games with my good friend Adolfo. Shout out, Adolfo. Uh, and I, I, I'm i just like, it just seems, oh, God, Steve, such a waste of our priorities to spend preciously, uh, dedicate preciously needed property tax dollars, which is, it'll be funded prop- probably by property tax dollars, on a new baseball yard, particularly since there's nothing wrong with the existing one. It's a perfectly good ballpark. Perfectly good ballpark in the neighborhood. Every time I go back to Chicago, it gets nicer and nicer and nicer around. around uh, I still call it DeSell, even though it isn't. Well, I still call it Sox Park. Yeah, it's Comiskey uh, does, right? Park. I still wear my Disco uh, Demolition t-shirt with pride. Uh, not me, man. Yeah. I was on the other side of that. I love Disco. Okay? Oh, yeah. I love Disco. Disco. I, love, I love the Vec family, and I love that that whole business was hilarious. Did you see the documentary about Mike Vec? Yeah, I urge everybody to watch. It's on Netflix. You know, if you don't, unless you have a heart, you'll be crying like a baby at the end of that. It is such a moving, great, great, great family, story. great guy. Yeah. Vec, I once interviewed. He was my personal hero. Great man. But anyway, you yeah. You know, yeah. People, so yeah, Americans, about, we want bread and circuses, right? Say that again. We're just like the ancient Romans. We want bread and circuses. That means we get a new stadium every thirty years, like it or not, and it'll be it'll be with some big real estate development. They'll build a big mall, a big entertainment zone, right? <laughs> you know, that's just how but we there's do. no money for migrants. You know what I mean? No, no, we can't. Oh my God, these migrants are costing us a fortune, Ben. Yeah. Oh, we got enough money for. Yeah. New I mean, we, we built all these yards here in Arizona, you know, the, for the for the Cardinals and, you know, for the Diamondbacks, who are the National League champions. Let's not forget. And, uh, and the Coyotes want a stadium now so they can play the Blackhawks. And- Wait, did you do one for the, the Cubs? Oh. Didn't the Cubs get some public money from Arizona? Yes, for their- did to, to keep uh, spring training in Mesa. Yeah, that's like wow. a big deal. That's a huge deal in Mesa and in the Valley of the Sun in Phoenix to have the Cubs and the Sox. And you got to come down for for Cactus League. It's great. I, you know, I might get it together. Uh, no, no, let's, to, let's check out a game. We'll see the Sox. Uh, we'll go see the White Sox. There we go. Because yeah. you're not a Cubs fan, correct? 
Ancestral Cubs fan. I mean, I have warm feelings about the Cubs. I went to a ton of games at Wrigley as a kid. It bothers me a little bit that the Ricketts own the team. That is my hangup. So why did you go? Why were you part of the White Sox fan club? Because I grew up originally with the Sox. My dad knew a guy who was a printer who was a batting practice catcher for the White Sox when civilians <laughs> could actually be on the field before the game. And we used to get freebie tickets. <laughs> we go down to Old Comiskey, man. Oh, Lord. I have the pictures to prove it. You know, I was a fan of Pete Ward and Joel Horland. Remember all those guys in 67? Yeah, Tommy Agee. He's a Sox player, yeah. right? Um, uh, no, I, I I still love the White Sox. Yeah. Uh, Wilbur Wood. Got to love yeah, Wilbur Wood. Wood. Uh, Wilbur Wood lumbering around. Remember Ed Herman, the catcher? Ed, uh, giant butterfly in that glove that was this gigantic glove. Yeah, yeah, when he was catching Wilbur Wood, yeah. 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 Uh, no, I love the White Sox. And, um, you know, I, I just not sure I'm on board uh, with the new White Sox stadium at all. Uh, I, if they built it themselves with their own money, and I'm laughing at that notion, yeah, go ahead, knock yourself out. Yeah, but, but you, you want to move to Nashville? No, you don't. You don't want uh, to move to no. Nashville. You didn't want them to move to Tampa. They, you know what? We saved them. Yeah. They, Tampa, what a horrible place to have a baseball team. Nobody nobody goes to one of those games. You oh, get what I'm saying? Look at that crappy park they have down there. Oh, my God. Uh, and and that, nobody's going to support baseball in Nashville. That's like such an empty threat. Uh, yeah, but, but, you know, we don't want to lose them. So trust me, they're going to play in the South Loop. I guarantee you. All right. Well, that's Steve Kraft's prediction from Arizona. I am not going to make a counter prediction regarding Arizona politics. I don't know it well enough, uh, but I am encouraged by what you had to say about Ruben uh, Gallegos. And I think there's a, I'm not going to predict it, but uh, I think you're right. I think the extremism uh, will hurt the Republicans in Arizona on the local level. Yep. Because uh, Car- Carrie, not Carrie, God, I want to call Carrie, her Carrie yeah. all the time. Carrie. Carrie Lake uh, is um, really out there. But that's how MAGA plays, Steve. Uh, mm-hmm. You were saying uh, they don't make, she doesn't make nice. MAGA doesn't make nice. Well, uh, I mean, and the Democrats that do have to thread a needle, and that means. The situation has to stabilize in the Middle East and the economy has to continue to get better. And if those two things happen um, and people are concerned about abortion rights and our democracy, I do think the Democrats will win. All right. Let's take that to the bank, ladies and gentlemen. Take it to the bank. Uh, take it to the bank. Steve Kraft will be uh, returning. I just uh, announcing that, even though he's not agreed to that, uh, probably uh, next month. So get ready, Steve, wherever you are. Uh, we'll track you down and bring you back on the show. We'll talk Arizona politics and national politics. Is that a deal? All right, brother, you got it. All right, that's the great Steve Kraft. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. 